Hi, you're listening to Designing Yourself. My name is Paul McAleer. And this is Whitney Hess. Thanks for listening. This week, we're going to go with another easy, easy topic and talk about identity. Um, when it comes to identity, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we've talked about in previous episodes regarding who we are and discovering ourselves. But there's a really interesting component that we haven't totally touched on, and that's how we portray ourselves to other people uh, and what that means and, and the ramifications of that. So I'm interested in how we craft these identities and how we make up this story of who we are and how we tell other people about that story. I think it's very interesting that you started us off by defining identity as the image that we portray to others when so much of what I think about when I think about identity is how I perceive myself. That makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense because there's been so much we've talked about with, uh, with external versus internal, right? So undoubtedly there's, there's room for both. I, I go to the external because I think about this, um, you know, we've talked about how we can fragment our online image, for instance, and then where we write and kind of how that all contributes. And I see that all making up parts of our identity, but there are lots of other parts that are just not seen and they're, they're kept internal as well. Yeah. I wonder if there's another word for it when you're referring to the things that you're experiencing about yourself internally that you aren't exposing or portraying to others. But now I'm really interested in looking up identity to see what the dictionary definition is, but I'm not going to because (laughs) it's for us to define, right? That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, it's funny because at the conference I was at last week, um, just about every presenter, uh, not, not including myself, um, used a Wikipedia article somehow in a presentation. Oh my gosh. So it's not bad. It's not bad at all. It's just, uh, it's something that we can all rely on. (laughs) So we can look at it that way. I worked with an organization a few years ago that often had students come through um, and, and work with them on things. And I was privy to this recent teacher development, having not been in school for quite some time. Apparently now teachers won't allow their students to use Wikipedia articles as sources for their school papers. Oh, seems reasonable. Yeah, I'd be scared of that too. <laughs> so I'd be really scared. So we are not going to rely on the masses of Wikipedia editors to tell us what identity means. <laughs> exactly. I mean, really, when I look back, when I look at the notes that I kind of took before uh, before we started talking, um, I had three points that I wrote down. It's who you are, how to craft it, as far as identity goes, and what identity means. And that's all I wrote. That's it. So the who you are part to me is probably the most, um, the most intriguing thing, probably, because it's, it's a matter of this image that we have for ourselves as well as others about how we act, how we behave, what we do, what we should do, what we could do. I mean, there's a lot of shoulds and coulds around too. But then there are things that fall outside of, you know, that, that camp of, well, we should do this or could do that. And yet we do, we might do those things we could or should do, or we'll just do things that we, you know, that don't fall into those buckets pretty easily too. 
And I think that all makes up parts of our identity. Um, you know, the big question is, is, you know, is it, is it possible to have an independent identity or are we just kind of all part of one big thing too? You know, another small question. You touched on something very interesting there, which is do our behaviors shape our identity or does our identity shape our behaviors? And that is a big question for me. And it comes up a lot in um, the coaching program that I'm enrolled in because we talk a lot about how to help people recognize their blind spots and overcome them in order to reach their full potential, both in their personal lives and in their professional lives. And a big part of what is what gets in people's way is this idea of who they think they are, which is often called your personal narrative. And I know we've talked a lot about this, the narrative that you have running inside of your head about who you are, what you're supposed to do, what you're not supposed to do, what people like you do, who this kind of person, I'm putting heavy quotes, you can't see them, air quotes, (laughs) around the kind of person that you are as though you can be categorized and sorted and slotted into this this way of being or this, I guess, identity would be the right word for it. And a lot of times that narrative that we have about who we are, that question that you ask, who, who, who are we, um, is often filled with misconceptions that we've taken in from external sources over the course of our Mm -hmm. lives, all the way back to the very beginning. Of course, mom and dad are to blame for everything. (laughs) And we then internalize those and repeat them so much that we start to believe that they're true. And so how is it that we can change that narrative, recognize what has been running on loop in our minds and purposefully choose to believe something else about ourselves and tell ourselves something else, thereby perhaps changing our identity. That's a great point. One of the things that really blew my mind was the, uh, the notion that the voices in our head might not be our own voices. And I know you brought that up a, a few weeks ago when we spoke. Um, I still love that. And, and that's been sitting with me. And similarly, some of these things that we hear in our minds about ourselves and our behaviors are not really our own voices. And that's not in the, that's not in the stereotypical, that's not a voice in my head type of thing, but it's more that we've heard these things from other people uh, or the media or whoever over time, and we've internalized them. So we hear them all the time and we say, you know, I should do this or I shouldn't do that or, you know, what have you. Um, but we, we start to, we may start to think they're our own. And it takes very attentive listening to oneself and listening to that voice to really identify where it came from and if it's you or not. And that, that kind of ties into the identity stuff a little bit because you may hear these things, these, these voices around a behavior, um, but they're not, they're not necessarily your voice. They are others. And we might play them and there's no necessarily judgment there. It's just it may not be you. Who's making that, um, making that statement or, or asking that question why you're doing that or what have you. Now I need to tell you 
this thing that comes up for me often when conversations get around to this topic. I don't want to go too far off course. So if you feel I'm going there, please stop me. Will do. Okay. So I am mildly obsessed with this concept of panopticon. Have you heard of this? Yes, but you need to refresh my okay. memory. So what you're saying just brings this to the forefront of my mind. So that's why I want to go there. The idea of panopticon was, it was a philosophical notion that was then adapted into a prison design. And it was a circular or hexagonal prison where all of the, and I'm going to use all the wrong terminology because, you know, I just don't have my prison terminology down, (laughs) but all of the little rooms where people live, you know, their cells, thank you, their cells, mm-hmm. um, are, are around the perimeter of this, this building structure. And in the middle is a courtyard. So imagine a circle or a hexagon that has its perimeter enclosed, but then everyone comes out into the courtyard, into the center. And in the very middle of a courtyard is this, um, what's it called, where the people with airplanes um, direct, air traffic control tower. Yep. Yep. Um, It's like that, tall and hovering above the whole prison. And it's kind of circular, so it has 360 windows. And it looks down on the courtyard, and it looks down on the cells and the building and the whole structure and the whole floor plan, essentially, of the prison. And what was so revolutionary about this prison design was that they only had to put one guard in that observation tower because that guard could see everything at all times. Sure. But here's the thing. They found after a while that because the prisoners knew that they could be seen at all times, they didn't even have to man the observation tower. They didn't have to send a guard up to the observation tower anymore because the design of the prison encouraged self-discipline. And the reason I'm telling this story about Panopticon and why I'm like so fascinated with the design is because I've felt as though there are many times in my life where something has been so deeply ingrained in me or I've been conditioned to believe something that the person who did the conditioning is long gone, long out of my life, but what they conditioned me to believe still exists and I'm the one who keeps telling myself over and over and over again what I'm supposed to be doing, how I'm supposed to be behaving, what I'm supposed to be thinking, that I just govern myself. And that's what Panopticon was all about. And I think that in many ways that's what you were saying, that there's these, these voices inside of your head that in many ways shape your identity and those voices don't even belong to you. They were put there, so to speak, by someone else. Maybe you allowed them to be put there. And now they've shaped the whole image of who you think you are and the way that you present yourself to the world. 
Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because right before this, I was th- also thinking about some sort of prison analogy. No, 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 I was not. I promise <laughs> I was not. Because that that would be too much of a coincidence. Um, also, it's interesting you chose a prison analogy um, when dealing with the self. So there's probably something there. Oh, yeah. Um, that, that all said, you're right in that it's it's that's a really great way to think about it as well because we have this – yeah, you know, it also falls into the parts of self theory, which which I totally subscribe to, where you have all these parts of yourself, and essentially there are people or voices or what have you that that judge the other parts or comment on the other parts or uh, love the other parts or, or anything, anything with the other parts. But there's that type of interaction, and where that comes from is the thing that you need to analyze and understand. Um, and also to realize that, yeah, these things may be long gone, but part of that also ties into understanding who you are now in the present, which is hard stuff. Because, you know, as we've talked about before, we change all the time. But these are things that, you know, you had suggested blaming uh, your parents for everything, as, as some psychologists probably would. But that, I mean, it comes from your upbringing, it comes from school, it comes from childhood, it comes from adolescence, and kind of all these things that stay with us over time and, and during our development, I would think. Um, but they stick with us and, and we bring them in, we let them in, we allow them in. And I'm curious why, why we allow them in, in the first place. I mean, I, I trust there's no blanket answer for everybody, but I wonder if that's just because we're, you know, simply because we're developing and figuring all this stuff out or, or trying to figure it out, or if it's due to sense of self or lack thereof, or kind of where that all falls in. I think that's a really great question, and I don't know that it's because we're weak and vulnerable and pathetic, and how dare we allow other people's ideas for who we are shade who we think we are. I I think that you make a really good point when you say maybe it's just because we're starting out we need to learn and grow, and I'm thinking now about the definition of identity as it applies in our professional space, brand identity. Mm. And I am unaware of any organization, company, initiative, anything that starts, that day one starts with a well-defined brand identity. And it's just not the thing that's on the tops of people's minds. And it's certainly not the thing that's of greatest importance. Most people start with a mission or an intention or an idea, and that idea grows. And it's over time that they figure out what they stand for as an organization, what their mission truly is, and how they want to present themselves to the outside world. And I've been involved in many identity projects that are for organizations that have been operating for a very long time. And then there's rebranding, which happens when perhaps the company wants to reach a new market or they um, aren't experiencing the success that they once did or they're expanding into a new industry or whatever. It makes sense to recalibrate how they express themselves. And that, that thing that you were talking about before about identity being this expression of the self. So we come together and we get a bunch of professionals that have experience expressing themselves as designers 
that's in many ways being experts at communication is a big part of what we do. And they help this organization to tease out who they really are and then express that, communicate that to the outside world in the way that it's understandable and it's compelling and it's interesting and it differentiates from the competition. And I think that it's not unlike what many of us go through as individuals on a personal level, that there's a lot of living that you have to do before you truly can identify what your identity is. And I think that it's not a mistake that identity and identification, you know, Hmm. um, have the same root words that being able to identify, make sense of clearly define something ultimately is the basis for what your identity is. And on a personal note, I was very clear and I've said this to you before and you know, it's kind of been the theme of my last year, but I thought for 30 years that I was very clear on what my identity is. I'm a native New Yorker. I'm a tough chick. Don't cross me. Uh, I can take on any business situation. I'm, you know, uh, uh, independent and successful and ready to, you know, change the world. That was in many ways kind of the identity that I always had, that I could go anywhere, do anything. And I'm sure that that was in part because I needed to cover up some of the insecurities that I'd always had. But I also was raised in that environment. I was born and raised in New York. And that's kind of the identity that a lot of people take on. It's a very rough and tumble city where if you don't move fast enough, you're going to get you know, eaten up and chewed and spit out. And so you got to move with the pace of things. And so that was what I took on as being who I was. And it took me having a series of revelations about myself often occurring outside of the city when I was traveling on business and very lucky to have opportunities to experience other places that I realized, you know what, I don't have to be rough I could be soft. I'm not any less me if I'm a softer person. In fact, maybe I'm really a soft person. Maybe I'm Mm. really not about technology. Maybe I really am about people. Maybe I'm not really about criticism and negativity and power and success. Maybe I'm really about equanimity. Maybe I'm really about compassion. And it took moving somewhere else and really trying on a totally different lifestyle for size to determine that what resonates with me now at this stage in my life is actually very different than what I used to think of myself as. And as I said to you before, there were some people that kind of freaked out when I left New York being like, no, you're a New Yorker. Like you don't leave New York. Like no way. And you know what I did, and I'm a lot happier now, and I could very well move back tomorrow and great, or I could go live somewhere else. We don't know what the future brings, but this idea that our identity changes, that nothing is permanent, like we talked about last episode, is something that is really important to me. And I think that you make a fantastic point, that it is something that evolves and that 
we need to just be for a while and learn and grow before we're able to truly define it. And I also think there's, there's something that you've been talking about that's highly relevant and that's the, the degree to which place affects identity as well. You know, you, you talked about New York and, um, at that same conference I was at last week, I talked a lot about how I'm from Chicago and how I'm, I'm relatively nice. I'm not Minnesota nice, but I'm from the Midwest and we're relatively nice people here, even though Chicagoans can be jerks sometimes. It happens. <laughs> but that plays into it too, is that, you know, it, it, you're, you're impacted by where you are. And that's not necessarily just geographic, although that plays a role, but it's also, it's also family. It's also uh, work. It's also friends and social circles and, 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 you know, if you're religious, any kind of religious organization, stuff like that, basically all of those things also shape your identity for sure. Um, I was thinking mostly about place because I think, you know, there's a certain identity that I associate with New Yorkers <laughs> yeah. and, and it is kind of a rough and tumble and I kind of don't, you know, I kind of don't care about other people, but it's almost a tough love kind of thing, you know, kind of that, that mixed, it's almost a stereotype, but it is kind of a stereotype. But the crazy, the crazy thing about it, though, is that it is an identity, not a reality, because New Yorkers are so kind and giving and helpful and loving and community-oriented. But meanwhile, the outward persona or the identity, if we are going to call it that as this external expression of the self, is a very rough way of being. But that's not the reality of who the people really are on the inside. Yeah. And that makes sense. And I wonder how much of that, you know, how much of that is a front, <laughs> you know, I mean, how, for that matter, how much of my, my being nice is a front as well, you know? Well, if you remember, you know. <laughs> I, I know, well, no, you're, you are this nice listeners. He is this nice. It's very annoying. But no, remember we were talking about Sarah's piece on empathy starts with vulnerability and one of the things that she talks about in there is fronting that in mm -hmm. the workplace, we're so afraid of being raw and exposed that we put up a front to make ourselves seem more together, more confident, smarter, whatever. And all the time that I come into contact with folks who are, you know, work for my clients and maybe getting in the way of, progress on a project or naysayers about the work we're trying to do or whatever that they have taken on that persona of being the obstacle often they're just fronting for feeling out of control of the situation insecure about their position in the company unclear on how they're going to continue to play a role or whether they're of any value to the company at all etc like it often does have to do with their own sense of vulnerability and their own confusion, perhaps, about their place. Is that an identity crisis? I mean, is there this, like you're saying, you consider yourself to be relatively nice, but not as nice as Minnesotans. And then if you maybe realize that being nice isn't serving you and you need to find a way to be less nice, is that identity crisis? I don't think so. I think my identity still allows that to happen. I mean, that's within the realm of me. I don't have to be nice, but I choose to because I enjoy that. And, you know, that, that tends to work pretty well for me. You know, something 
that I'm wondering here while we're, we're chatting about this is I'm wondering if I'm confusing reputation and identity hmm. because to me, and here's why, because I'm wondering if identity is more possibly internal facing and reputation is more external. Because if you think about it, a reputation, you don't really have that much control over it. I mean, it's based on your act, perceived actions and behaviors and words and all that good stuff. And essentially things you put out into the world, right? And, and there's a reputation around you that builds up. But it's not something, you, you know, you necessarily can't just control it. Like, I, neither of us have, have perfect control over our reputations. And there's a part of me that, you know, that's like, that, that how is that acceptable? Like I'd love to, but we, but we simply don't. I mean, we have no control over that stuff, but identity, I'm wondering if that's something then, you know, we, we have a better grasp of because it is more about ourselves and how, you know, the groups we identify with and the beliefs we identify with and, and the things we don't believe and, and kind of sussing all that stuff out. I think that they are very interrelated identity and reputation, but I see them as being different. I actually think I agree with your original definition of identity, that it's the outward or external representation of the self or expression of the self. I think it's what's happening outside of you in relation to other people, the same way that reputation is, but from at least the way that I think of reputation is the reaction to your identity. Hmm. It's like what other people think and feel about who you are. And the and who you are to them, to the outside world, that's still your identity. But I don't think that they're necessarily the same thing. I think that your identity impacts your reputation. And for many people, your reputation impacts your identity. Immediately I think about that girl who was a total slut in high school because everyone talked about how she was a total slut. So she was like, well, if I already have the reputation of being a total slut, I'm going to go be a total slut because if you can't beat them, join them. Right. You knew that girl, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I totally knew her and I swear I wasn't her, but I totally knew her. And that becomes this cycle, right, of the reputation impacting the identity. She may not have thought of herself that way beforehand but then she somehow got this reputation and that changed her perception of herself so now she's had a shifted identity and now she's gonna act in accordance with that identity and that goes back to what I was trying to explain about the coaching methodology or philosophy that's present in my program that our existing narrative isn't only shaped by our behaviors, but it shapes our behavior. So what we think we are determines how we act and how we act reinforces what we think we are. So really the only way to change that narrative is to change your behaviors because otherwise it's just a vicious cycle. That's true. That's true, but I'm wondering, like, with the with the slut example. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to, like, if I offended anyone with the word slut. I hope I didn't. We're we're gonna stick with it. So, okay. uh, um, more offending is coming up. But, um, but with that, for instance, if if the reputation is out there that she is, for instance, it's also I would think on her to choose whether to take that in or not. 
like to essentially say, okay, I am, and I'm going to go with it. Boy, this example is, <laughs> it's a good one. Um, or, or say, you know, uh, or say I'm not and still fight against it and just and essentially fight too. I think that that's an important word I see as a fight, because if the reputation is this thing and you're not actually this thing, then you're going to be fighting against it. And then it becomes, you know, what are the things that you do to change that reputation or, or mm, influence that reputation since you can't actually change it? I don't think you can, you know, what are the things that you can absorb as part of your identity and put out in the world that may or may not change that? And it depends on what your goal is. But I also see that as a choice thing too. I mean, she didn't necessarily have to say, okay, I am that I identify with that. She could have I don't say just as easily say, but she could have chosen to do something that's probably more difficult and say, no, I don't identify with that at all. That's not me. So I'm just going to keep doing the things I do. And if people, you know, see me that way, well, tough. Well, I think the point that you made earlier about identity being something that gets shaped as you learn and grow applies here because at that young age, perhaps, she doesn't have a strong enough sense of self to take a look inward and say to herself, you know what, I, that's not actually who I am. What they're saying I am doesn't resonate with me. I feel strongly that that is not me, and so I'm going to defend my true identity. Instead, it could be that at that point in time when you're you are still learning and growing and hopefully we always are learning and growing but there's a point in life in which you just don't have enough of that perspective as on who you are as an individual that it can be very easy to believe what other people say about you and so maybe in the situation that we're talking about here who she saw herself as was not as strong as what other people told her she was. And so there's not necessarily that positive influence or the cues from other places in her life to reinforce that positive, if we want to call it more positive identity of her being not a slut than there is of people who are negatively influencing her to believe that she is. And and so maybe there's that push and pull there and that a lot of how we define ourselves to others, as of course we would suspect, comes from the amount of personal resolve that we have and ability to self-reflect and make good, strong decisions about ourselves without the influence of others. Totally. And that's very difficult to do in my experience, at least. And I think you're right in that when we're younger, it may, it may be even harder. I mean, there are some people that I can recall from uh, high school and college and not really before that, but a little more in high school and, and more so in college who really had this, this strong sense of confidence and self. And it was like armor. It was like nothing, nothing could really get them. And I don't know how much of that was, you know, spin or, or, you know, managing one's reputation and how much of it was genuine, but it certainly came across that way. And that's something that I find, you know, uh, admirable to a degree. I still do, but it's, it's, I, I also see that as something that has a lot of hard work that goes with it as well. I think part of what we haven't 
really expressed yet in defining what this hairy empathy. Uh, see, I was about to say empathy. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this hairy identity thing is, is it often has a lack of empathy for the individual. I think that a lot of times, and I'm thinking back again to the branding exercises that I've worked on. It's about relating this one thing to all other things like categorizing it and putting it in that box so that whatever characteristics it has, you can express kind of broadly, paint it with a broad brush so that you can more easily understand what it is in relationship to other things. I'm using a lot of words to say, I think that there's an aspect of identity which is grouping oneself or another in with a lot of similar other individuals. So, you know, if you're a, a modern company or you're a traditional company, that's kind of the identity. And we have these preconceived notions of what modern or traditional is. And by me labeling this girl as a slut, that's like saying, well, when girls get that label, and often guys get that label too, it's painting them with a broad brush. It's saying, let's not take a look at their specific behaviors. Let's not take a look at their motivations or their their attitudes or their background. Let's just assume that they're what we think of as a slut, and then it's like kind of rounding out the edges or abstracting away from who that person really is saying you don't need to really get to know this on a deeper level this is its label is that I I feel like that's what identity in some way is that it doesn't have as many of the nuances as your true self does but it's kind of this abstracted version of self oh it's totally nuance free I think for the most part, because I know we've we've chatted a little about how um, how I was hesitating to identify myself as a runner, and that was because of all the trappings that go with it in my mind and all the negative stuff, which I don't really have as a runner. At least I don't think I I have, and I didn't want to be called that, so so I disallowed that. But the truth is, I am. I'm thinking similarly around um, something that. We both did independently, you and I, where I think it was a week or two ago, maybe we both declared ourselves writers. Yep. Just independently. It just happened, which is just another wonderful coincidence. And, and for me, what it was is I was really ruminating on this a little bit and thinking about all the things I do and how much writing I do and uh, how much writing I do at work and how much writing I do when I'm not at work. And I've been writing for a damn long time and I've never been formally trained in writing. I've never gone to a formal, well, not a formal writing class, although I've taken fiction writing in college, which was pretty awesome and exciting, um, for a semester, but I've just been writing so long that I am a writer, but I never took that, that label and made it part of my identity. But now I have because I am, and that's that's something I'm totally comfortable with. Now, that's not something that I was willfully excluding from my internal narrative or, or 
even my external one about myself, it was always there. I just didn't recognize it with that label, but now I'm taking on that label as well. So I'm taking on all of those things from, at least from an external perspective, I guess, where I don't have control over what people think about that. But I'm confident in my skills as a writer to the point where I, I can say to myself, yeah, I am a writer. And I think that what's so interesting about that is that when you claim that for yourself, I imagine that what you portray to others about who you are changes as well, because now you have this increased confidence that being a writer is in fact part of your identity. I struggle with the same thing. I was a professional writing major in college after I switched from computer science and before I picked up human-computer interaction as a double major. And writing has always been my first passion and my greatest passion. And it was never the thing that I was very good at, and it was never the thing that I was encouraged to do. It was actually the opposite of all of those things. It was just what I love to do, even though for a very long time I was told I wasn't very good, and I didn't think I would ever be able to do anything professionally with it. And so I kind of just put it aside and then I learned to find my place in the field of technology in a way that really resonated with me and felt authentic, which was working on the human side of technology. And that has been a tremendous passion as well. And I think it's obvious in all the things that I do and write about and speak about that I've devoted myself to that. But on a deeper level, I wanted to call myself a designer as a professional, a user experience designer, because I wanted to be perceived as someone who crafted solutions and mm -hmm. who, though had a specialization in user experience, was still just as legitimately a designer. That was really important to me in the context that I was in early in my career in the agency world, essentially. Um, it was only recently that I felt this urge to really be called a writer, that being known as a writer, seeing myself as a writer was more authentically me, that I had wanted to be seen as a designer because I thought that that would take me somewhere professionally, and quite frankly it did, but that at the end of the day, I never cared what side of the page the box was on. I never cared about the details of the interaction design, and when I, you know, over the last decade was exposed to interaction designers who truly cared about these things and who were so fantastic at making these decisions and transforming an experience through their work, I realized, guess what? That's not me. I love talking about this stuff. I love speaking about this stuff. I love sharing my insights and my lessons with a broader group of people outside of just my organization or my clients' organizations or whatever, that's what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of the evangelism. I want to be a part of shaping what this field is and its relationship to related fields. And just being able to say, okay, Whitney, you're a writer. 
call yourself a writer. You don't just write, but you are a writer. And it's not the third thing on the list of things that you do. It's the first thing. That's really how you spend your time. And that's what you love to do the most. So put that out there. Be true to your to your true identity. And I struggle with it for so long because I kept telling myself, I can't really call myself a writer because I don't get paid to write. I get paid to do client work. And my client work involves helping companies to improve the designs of their products, ultimately. Now, I might be doing that through workshops. I might be doing that through presentations. I might be doing that through training. I might be doing that through deliverables sometimes, um, but more than not lately, I don't have very many deliverables at all. I'm working from a more strategic standpoint with my, my clients. So then, okay, I'm not getting paid to write, but I'm also not getting paid to design, technically speaking. So what? What do I call myself then? Am I just a consultant? And this whole thing of like needing to own the identity of being a writer became really challenging for me. And I shared that with a small group of friends that I'm on a Facebook group with. And one woman responded saying that she has been a travel writer for a decade. She's been paid to write for a decade and she can't claim the identity of being a writer. And so here's someone on the totally opposite end of the spectrum from me in that she gets paid to write and only gets paid to write. And yet she doesn't feel like she can call herself a writer because she thinks a writer is someone who defines their own subjects, who writes from their soul, who writes creatively and that she's been writing you know, based on the assignments that were given to her by her employer. So everyone has the, their own definitions of what is allowed within the confines of an identity. And if we're going to say that being a writer is an identity, I think how you define that, how I define that, how she defines that, they're all very different things. But meanwhile, we all want to apply the same label to ourselves. So, and I think that in many ways that's where it gets confusing, where identity as you define it for yourself is a very, very challenging thing to communicate to others and have it be perceived as you intended it. Well, I think, yes, you're right on basically all of those points. I'm going to just blindly agree with everything, but I was listening. I promise. <laughs> I, But it, it's really hard for us to encapsulate who we are into one, any one thing. Although we, try to do that anyway with other people and probably ourselves too. You know, like we, we, we really try to capture that in, into a word or a phrase like writer is loaded. UX designer is loaded. UI designer is loaded. Um, plumber, you know, I'll, and I'm thinking a lot of professional stuff, but then it's also, you know, things like husband and father and, and boyfriend and girlfriend, all these things that we may attach to ourselves and, and take in as part of our identity these have meaning. I mean, these aren't just random words and, and, and we clearly identify with at least one part of it, if not the whole thing. So then why, why are we so wanting to simplify that? 
why isn't it always this giant list of things that we are or are not? Because it is a giant list of things. It's giant. I mean, you know, we're, we're both in our thirties. We've got giant lists of things that we are right now and things that we have done and things that we, you know, things that we will do. Well, we don't know, but it's not something that you can just sum up in one word or one phrase or one idea. It's the, it's the self, you know? It's all of it, right. And how do you express that to someone else? And often now we're forced to express that in 140 characters or less. And totally. I, I'm reminded of Friendster, which had this about me section that was endless. And I remember that I was always tweaking my about me. Because it was that one place that I could really express who I was. And I would struggle between using verbs, like I collect Pez dispensers, I write about whatever, I enjoy these types of movies, versus nouns, movie mm-hmm. lover, writer, you know, avid reader. And when we use nouns to describe ourselves, we're putting those identities on us and it has its benefits and it has its drawbacks. The benefits being that it feels more defined, at least for me, like this is who I am. I'm clear on who I am and I want you to get the sense that I am clear on who I am versus... um, being, you know, creating misconceptions about what that really is. An avid reader to me is someone who can get through a book in a month because we lead crazy lives and who could read a book for pleasure in a month? It's crazy. But uh, to (laughs) my dear friend Clarice, who is truly an avid reader, she gets through multiple books a week. Mm -hmm. So if I define myself as an avid reader, that's part of my identity means different things to different people. Our obsession with claiming who we are, um, you know, in in some ways it has its benefits because it helps to differentiate you from other people perhaps, but it also has all of the, that baggage that comes along with it. It does. And I need to ask, do you collect Pez dispensers? I sincerely collect Pez dispensers. Really? Okay. 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 Here's the thing. Nice. I just felt inauthentic saying that. Why? Oh. Because it's been several years since I bought a new Pez dispenser, at least one that was a collectible. And so I collect Pez dispensers um, maybe as a verb I collect. I don't feel as inauthentic about, but to say I am a Pez dispenser collector For some reason, that doesn't feel like it's as true. Like, I want to couch it by saying, well, I actually started collecting Pez dispensers when I was in the eighth grade. I found them at flea markets. I was one of the early eBay users, and eBay was in part created to help trade Pez dispensers. I have belonged to a lot of Pez dispenser communities over the years. But meanwhile, that's not something that I'm actively doing. So I feel like I can't call myself that. That's no longer part of my identity. At some point in my life, it was. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And I felt very good about saying, I am a Pez dispenser collector. But that's not me anymore. And this is true. I actually do collect Pez dispensers. Wow, that's pretty awesome. I would not have guessed that either, by the way. Right. Not it's not all. part of the identity that I portray, I guess. Exactly. And it doesn't fit in with the identity that you know me as having. Exactly. Exactly. That That's why I was su- so surprised. And it, what a great example. Because I was also thinking about how, you know, when you, when you talk about a collector, I start thinking about uh, generally online forums and stuff like that. Like when people are really like geeking out over stuff. Because I remember one time when I was looking for... Um, when I was looking for information on a particular ceiling fan part, I stumbled upon a ceiling fan fan forum and it's a thing. It's a real thing. And I didn't, you know, I, I, I was just surprised at the time, but then the beauty of this stuff is that people can absolutely identify with it and geek out over it with other people if they want to, or if they just need a part like me, you know, that's, that's a very different process. I mean, I, I greatly appreciate ceiling fans, but I don't collect them and (laughs) I'm not, I'm not an aficionado or a fan because boy, that pun is too obvious. I mean, there are things, yeah, yeah. I had to go for it. I am absolutely a punner. I love puns so much. Um, and I identify myself as, as, as one as well. I don't know. There's probably a very punny term for what that type of person is. Um, but that, that is part of my identity. You said punny, like funny. It is punny, yes. Like funny? I've, I've also used punnery before, that What's I'm into that? Pun, punnery. Like oh, it's a, a nunnery? Sure. Whatever it rhymes with, that, that works for me. My mind just simply doesn't understand puns. I love, Interesting. I love a good double entendre. Don't get a pun. Okay. So you're going to have to explain them to me when you drop them. <laughs> I will. I'll make a note of it for sure. Thank I will you. say pun, pun intended in that case and we'll okay, go, we'll yes, go for it. Thank you. <laughs> um, but, but it is, it is interesting that I, I, I didn't used to collect Pez, but I used to collect baseball cards when I was a kid. And I bet a lot of people did. Um, but that's something that really faded away a while ago. Um, all those baseball cards are still at my mom's house, but I don't identify myself as a baseball card collector anymore. That's just not me, you know? So that's an activity that for me is in the distant past and has no relevance to, well, I shouldn't say that, but I will anyway, but it has no relevance to who I am now, but that's not true because it absolutely does have some degree of relevance. I just might not be able to perceive it, you know? Completely. And I think that there's, it's not just about your own perception of yourself, but it's what you're bringing to the forefront to others too, right? I mean, this I'm giggling because this stuff is so interrelated. It is a part of who you are, that you had this part of your past help to define who you are now. There are probably skills that you picked up from having this hobby that you employ now, whether or not you're aware of it. But it doesn't have usefulness in your identity anymore. And I think that that's, that that at least saying that out loud helps me give greater definition to what identity means for me. That it is not the entirety of the self, but it is what is most relevant at the time for myself and for other people. So this 
very conscious decision to say, I am a writer, and it's not going to be the third thing that I list in my very short bio on Twitter. It's going to be the first thing that I list, is to say that I've always been a writer. It just had less relevance to my identity than it does at this moment in time because I'm trying to do things with my writing in a more meaningful way than I was in the past. In the past, I was really trying to do stuff with design work that I needed to be the largest part of my identity that other people would perceive so that it would enable me to keep doing that work. That's what my goals were at the time. Um, Now my goals have shifted, and I'm maybe no less a designer, even if I'm designing less verb, but I am more. I'm, I'm more inspired to, and more. Um, I'm having a hard time finding the word. Haha, writer. Um, <laughs> I'm more inclined to present myself as a writer first and foremost now because it serves the purpose um, that I'm focused on at the moment. Sure. And that, that totally makes sense as well. I mean, it's, it's really about who you are in that moment and how you identify yourself in that moment as well. Absolutely. So I have a question for you. We are, have been talking about how we define ourselves, how other people define us, how we want other people to define us, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. What happens when someone tries to steal your identity. Do you actually lose an identity? Is it possible? Ooh. Well, are you referring to the... I'm curious if you're referring to the the idea of identity theft, or are you referring to something more... Less tangible, I guess. But, okay, so I I'm thinking of identity theft as it okay. as it comes about, you know, from having someone take your credit card information or open up new accounts in your name. But I'm also thinking of identity theft in the sense of, let's say, a professional persona where you have defined yourself as being an XYZ and you feel as though that's differentiated and that's your brand identity and that's, so that's like the external identity, but it's also the way you you see yourself and the value that you bring to your profession. Mm -hmm. And then someone comes along and starts doing that too. So I think that both examples are relevant to this idea that someone else can take your identity on as their own does that mean that you no longer can have it or that they just have it too they have it too but it's going to be unique to them i mean i'm thinking more about the latter than the you know the very like hey we're gonna you know uh, take your credit card info which you know i've i've had happen once and stuff like that because that that to me is slightly different because when If someone were to come out and say, you know what, I am all about empathy, (laughs) Um, that would be fine. They could totally do that. And and there would be some people who would absolutely uh, 
in some circles in UX at least who would, who would think of you because that's where you've put a lot of your brand and that's where a lot of your identity is, for instance. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can no longer identify with that as being you know, passionate about that and being skilled at that because other people are as well. I mean, the fact that matters, you know, you're not, you're not the only one who does that type of work, but you do it in the way that, that only you can do it. And that is true of anybody who does their work. Like everybody does in a unique way. You know, we talk about, when we talk about work, we talk about processes and techniques. And one of the things that, that I'm fascinated by is how it varies from person to person. And that's true of anything because, Really what we're doing all the time is we're, we're taking all these influences from other people and kind of bringing them into ourselves and remixing them and putting them back out in the world. And that's true of identity as well, because there are, there are things that, that I've taken from people whose work I've admired or influenced or copied, you know, the old, the old saw of, you know, good artists copy, great artists steal. That's true, <laughs> right? Because people just, t- you, you take all that stuff in, you absorb it, and then you do with it as you will. And it comes out in a very unique way that is unique to you. Imitation um, is the sincerest form of flattery. Totally, right? Totally. And that's why, you know, that's, that's, that's something we see a lot of. We see that a lot. I don't see that as something that really threatens identity at that level. I don't see it as something that threatens identity or, or negates it within the person who, you know, originated it such as it is. It's simply, you know, it's simply continuing on in a different form. I think that's okay. Um, when it comes to, you know, things like identity theft, well, I didn't really enjoy it when somebody pretended to be me and buy some stuff. Um, that wasn't very fun. So they weren't, I mean, they weren't using, the facet of my identity they were using was really around my finances, which I find dreadfully boring, but they found it, they found it very good because they could buy a bunch of shit and not deal with any of the consequences. Right. So, um, so, it, and, th- and that was a relatively lightweight thing because there are some people who've had much, much more severe things. And we, you know, there've been things I've, I've been reading online about that stuff in the recent past, like, you know, identity is just getting totally hijacked and that's crazy shit. Um, so, but not to dump it. But can an identity be taken away from you? I mean, what you said before sounded to me like you were saying that identities can be shared, but how each person lives is unique. And so, you may have the same or similar identities. You might be perceived as being in the same category of things, but the way one person does it and the way another person does it, you can still see the distinctions of perhaps if you have the distinctions about that thing, like I can, I can see some distinctions in the way different people act. Like I've been watching films and I've been going to theater and seeing shows and for a very long time. So I have a sense of the different techniques that people use to act. But with regards to, I'm going to call on opera because one of my best friends is getting married this weekend and she's an opera singer. She has taught me a lot about opera, but I still don't have any distinctions around opera singing that I would know that one person's using one technique and one person's using another. I probably wouldn't be able to differentiate between a soprano and a mezzo. I know that those things exist, but to Mm -hmm. me, they're all opera singers. So Mm -hmm. that's their identity to me, opera singer. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I'm wondering then if identities can be shared in that way, then with identity theft, 
can something be taken from you, like where it's no longer yours, or is someone else just adopting it and it remains yours at the same time? Well, I think it, I think it depends on the intent there, honestly, because, you know, if you think about it in kind of a, mm, let's say not realistic way, certainly two people could share the same identity when it comes to social security number and credit card info and, and stuff like that. Like that could be, that could be shared. Like in theory, you could share that with another person, although that would society would not really be finding that terribly acceptable. And the the individuals might not find that acceptable either. Do you remember the net with Sandra Bullock? (laughs) Of course I do. I click on pie on the corner of every website (laughs) I visit. Oh my God. So that was identity theft, wasn't it? And they were taking yes, it, it away was. from her so that it was no yes. longer hers. Yes, that's true. And I think, again, it comes back to intent because I also think about, um, to, <laughs> thank you for referencing the net. I freaking because, love that movie. Because that envisioned a time when we could order pizza online. It was like, oh, that would be so cool. <laughs> um, it reminds me, oh boy, I'm going to, I'm going to sidebar really quick for a minute, Please. but back in, I think 95 or 96, there was something called the internet pizza server where you could you know, pretend to order a pizza online, like you could enter your ingredients and stuff. And that would just, I think, list out what you would get because that's all we could do. You could not actually order a pizza online pretty much anywhere at that time. It just wasn't like the stuff really wasn't in place for that. And at the time it was mind blowing to think about that. Cause I think the net was later. I think that was like 99, I want to say, but I could be wrong. Oh, I think it was earlier um, than that. But okay. uh, what the thing that stuck with me on the net was that it was possible for computer programmers who work at home to be hot and in shape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was good. Sandra Bullock. Awesome. Yes. I um, was unaware of that at the time. And I mean, perhaps that inspired me. Maybe it did. I but thought, I think it, I, I could be hot and in shape and work from home and be a computer programmer. Absolutely. Anybody could, right? That's still true. Um so uh, there's there's another show, um, or- Orphan Black, wonderful sci-fi show, highly recommended, and it deals with identity as well. Um, actually, it's a core, gosh, it's a core component of the show. Um, I don't want to spoil it, but there's a lot of a lot of stuff around identity that happens in the very first episode that that makes it worth watching. It's very good, very very good, and I highly recommend it. Um, but it comes up there too because there is a bit of the hijacking of one's identity and taking over somebody in a way and just choosing to do that and going with it. But the, it's about the intent. I believe it's about what you're intending to do with that. You know, the person who stole my credit card was really just looking to, you know, get a bunch of crap and, and fill up the gas tank in their car. And I don't know why I never found out why, but I was able to stop them because I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to protect that part of my identity pretty fiercely. Um, and for me, thankfully that was relatively easy to do. And it, it may be very difficult for somebody like Sandra Bullock to do that. And then, it, you know, it ends up being this big, this big thing. And I forget, I kind of forget the climax of that movie, but it, you know, I, I remember something about an important disc, but I might be confusing it with Independence Day. No, I'm not sure. There was sure. a disc. There was oh, a disc. Of she course, had, there she was has a, a disc. copy on the disc. Yeah. Okay. Just like an office space. Okay. Great. But I'm now reminded of another movie since we're on a movie kick about <laughs> identity. The movie itself titled Identity. Have you seen that? I don't also think so. Also sci fi ish. Yeah, John Cusack. Ah. Highly hey, recommended. He's good. he's good. And it's. I don't want to ruin it either, so I can't say much, (laughs) but the premise on the surface of things is that it's about a criminal 
perhaps murderer, it may be, I can't remember, who has multiple personality disorder and Mm. is being released from prison or has escaped from prison. Now I can't remember. And he's, he's out there. And part of what they're assessing is how, you know, which of these identities is his. Because when you have multiple personality disorder, like that TV show that I've never watched, United States of Tara, mm-hmm. you are expressing all of these different sides of yourself. And what can be very challenging for the people in your life is to differentiate between them and to determine which of those is your true self. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of what the movie is about, but actually not really at all. It's really just like a psychological thriller, sci-fi kind of thing. But um, I highly recommend it. Identity, John Cusack. Okay. So <laughs> so we actually have some uh, some some things to watch and see. Oh, yeah. I've never identity. even heard of Orphan Black. Oh, wonderful show. Goodness gracious. So good. Um, yeah, I recommend that too. Part of my identity is that I'm not actually a nerd. Like, I work in this nerd world, and all my friends are nerds, and all of my clients are nerds, and I'm, like, supposed to be a nerd or something, but I'm not. So I haven't seen, like, (laughs) the Star Wars and the Lord of the Rings, and I haven't read Isaac Asimov or whatever. I don't even know if I'm saying the right thing. And I just don't even know about (laughs) any of this stuff. And there are so many times when friends or colleagues will make some reference that is clearly a nerd reference just because of, like, the words that they're using and the happy look on their face. And I'm just like, I am so glad I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) I mean, yes, and I have that as well. And it's funny because I... For a long time, I really wanted to fight the image of being a nerd and or a geek, and there is a difference, but damned if I can remember what it is. Yeah. And I really wanted to fight that, and I think I've I've just been able to kind of let go of that and say, okay, yeah, if you call me that, that's fine. I mean, I, I, I have, thanks to my past, I have a rather staggering knowledge of Star Trek The Next Generation, and wow, it's, it, that's, a, that's a geeky thing to geek out over. But I will geek out over that with somebody. And then I'm also, you know, it's almost like touching back to the Pez stuff, too, because I'm a pen geek and I'm starting to turn into a coffee geek. And these are things that I'm happy to identify with because I see them as as things that I enjoy or I'm I'm proud of maybe in a way, too. Um, And then there, you know, there will be times when people make, much like you mentioned, Lord of the Rings references, and I have no clue what they're talking about. Yeah. And then they're stunned by the fact that I have not seen any of those movies. They're like, how can you not see that? It's like, yeah, I I simply haven't. And I haven't read the books either, so. So, did I hear you correctly when you said that you are a pen geek? P-E-N? Yes, budding pen geek. I will will qualify that. All right, then. I thought that's what you said. Yes. So, I am not a pen geek. However... I lived around the corner from a the Fountain Pen Hospital, which is in Lower Manhattan. And so the next time you make it to New York, you must visit the Fountain Pen Hospital. <laughs> okay. It's been open for like 50 plus years and it's like the place for pens and like getting the inserts for your pens and ink and all sorts of things. It's pretty amazing. Well, I'll tell you, when I was at, um, uh, there was one time when I was flying through New York and I was at, 
Oh gosh, JFK, I believe. Sorry, I'm, I'm. I know you have airports in New York, folks, but um, I forget what they are. And yeah, JFK and there's is one the of them. Uh, <laughs> JFK and LaGuardia. That's pretty much it. And Newark, I think too. Right? Yeah, but, you got it. Um, okay, I, I've I've done travel before, um, and there was uh, the Muji to go store, and my mind was blown at the sheer number of pens they had there, and that kind of turned me on to it because apparently, you know, and this is this is this is way off topic, but that's fine. Um, but there are a lot of people who really like Japanese pens and the Japanese have an enviable selection of pens available to them. And I mail order them from jetpens.com because that is how much I care about my pens. Wow. I'm that specific. I'm that specific. And there are pen bloggers and stuff like that. Like this I'm aware of, but I'm not one of them. And it's, it's again, it's like the ceiling fan stuff. Like your reaction is pretty much my reaction when I saw the ceiling fan fan site. It was the same thing. And now I've lost all my cred with the uh, pen geek community. No, I think pens are awesome. I totally (laughs) know that Muji story that you're talking about. And I, if I remember correctly, Muji has a lot of pens that are like wrapped in paper, like that brown paper kind of thing. Yes, they do. If memory serves. Yeah. It's been a couple of years. It's like, it's like a cylindrical pen that doesn't have any like hard edges. Like a lot of pens do. And it's like wrapped in paper. Anyway. Yes, Muji is cool, um, but I am I am a little bit surprised, a little bit taken aback that you have your pens ordered online from Japan. <laughs> I am I have gotten persnickety with my pens. I like I like a certain a uh, uh, certain millimeter width, and it's point three eight. That's what I like. Wow. Point point four is okay. Anything else is kind of ridiculous to me. So wow. there you go. Yeah. Oh my about goodness. That. Well. On that note, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, time to go order your pens. Yes, and I and, think I I wow. think we're done with identity. Yeah, <laughs> um, I want to say a couple things, not to get somber, but I did want to take a moment at the end of today's episode to just say that um, one of the instructors of my coaching program passed away suddenly last week, and it was awful. And if you follow me on Twitter, you may have seen some of my tweets about it. I don't need to get into specifics here. But um, she felt very passionately about this concept of identity. And a lot of what she did in her coaching practice was to help people come to terms with who, who they truly are, their true nature, and find a way into that, to let go of the stuff from their past and those old tape recorders playing in their mind and be their true selves. And I credit a lot of what I understand about this process to her that I learned in the short period of time that we knew each other. And I just wanted to acknowledge the importance of her life. And it's crazy that life is so impermanent as we've talked about and that the rug can just be pulled out from under you in a moment's notice. But, um, you know, everyone leaves an impact. And her impact was far and wide. She had tens of thousands of students pass through the school whose lives she touched. And I am very grateful that I was one of them. So I just wanted to say that. And um, if you wouldn't mind, Paul... So we'll figure out 
after this whether you think it's worthwhile or not. But there is a link for um, uh, fundraising for her family that I would love to throw up on this post if you'd be open to it. And anyone who feels like they have anything to spare, if you'd be willing to, to share it with her family, that would be amazing. And I'd really appreciate that. Absolutely. And, and our, of course, our thoughts are with their, with, with her friends and family. And this is a very difficult time and we'll absolutely put up that link in the blog post, no doubt. Thank you. And thank you for chatting with me about this today. This is something that I think we can't, like most of our topics or all of our topics, couldn't possibly do justice in just an hour or over an hour as it's been. But um, I'm grateful that I have the chance to talk about these things with you. And I hope that those of you who are listening find what we talk about to be relevant and truthful in your lives as well. And we would love to hear from you, hear what you think about this episode and other episodes, the content, the format, any things that you want us to clarify or ideas for topics that you want to hear us speak on. Um, We're really open to it and we wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you guys, our listeners. So thank you so much for being a part of it. Thank you for listening. And if you want to get in touch with us, there are a few ways you can do that. Um, our website is designingyourself.net. You can follow us on Twitter at designing you, Y-O-U. You can follow me at Paul McAleer and follow Whitney at Whitney Hess. And our super secret email address is designing yourself at gmail.com. Um, <laughs> please keep that feedback coming. We really, we really do appreciate it. And, you know, we, we read every single uh, tweet that's addressed to one of us or the show. Um, so please keep those coming. They're very valuable. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you to everyone listening. And I guess we'll end it here until next time. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.